look, somebody's got to come in and put the electric fence in a different place. The voltage is way too high on this electric fence that exists within league-owned and operated media, controlled media. And the fans wanted to have a voice. I said, you know, the team doesn't go out and eavesdrop on every fan within the stadium and just sit right there and tell them what they can and can't talk about. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast where my partner, Joe Favorito and I talk about the business of sports. Joe, good to see you for a new show, which will Tom, be our, our last of the summer of 2021. And it also may be the last one, hopefully, maybe we'll do on Zoom and we can actually do one in well, person. Although there are certain restrictions in, in doing things on campus, it may make that impossible, but we'll yes. I mean, I don't know about you, but when you and I had that faculty meeting this week to talk about the protocol, um, I just got tired from taking notes about all the things we're going to need to do between now and uh, second week of September when this all gets yeah. going. But no, I'm excited to get back. I can't wait to meet um, meet up in person. Um, and also, it's kind of funny for you and me with our producers, Ben and Taylor, behind the scenes. We know them quite well, but at least I have not met them in person yet. And I've known mm. them for almost a year, which is a really funny thought. Um Anyway, guys, there's so much to talk about in the biz right now, and I'm really excited about who we have to um, help us talk about some of the exciting things happening, particularly in the world of entrepreneurial development, uh, new businesses, SPACs, et cetera. We've got a guy in the business who would be classified, I think it's fair to say, Joe, as an OG of sports digital media. Um, someone who's well known to those uh, folks who have been in the business for a while, particularly on the media side, someone who has a very interesting background on a, in a number of ways, started his career working in journalism at a bunch of different newspapers. First of all, I should mention, because he went to a notable university, Baylor. After studying journalism at Baylor, he worked for such famous newspapers as the Kansas City Star the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the Houston Post. But then, like me and you, Joe, he saw the light and went digital back <laughs> when it got really big. Uh, so he got involved with um, is one of the most fascinating launches in, in sports business of the digital era. And that, is, of course, is Major League Baseball Advanced Media, sometimes called BAM Tech, but didn't was one of the original members of the executive team, team working with Bob Bowman and the rest. Uh, and the stuff they did will, uh, is legendary, obviously, the way they developed that business and ultimately exited when, they sold, when baseball sold it to, to Disney or their share to Disney. Really fascinating story. So the temptation, Joe, is going to be to spend a lot of time swapping early, early digital era stories, and we'll do some of that. But what's cool is that Din is now involved in this new venture, Turn to Equity, in partnership with a bunch of notable figures that he'll talk about. And they're doing some really fascinating things in terms of uh, rolling up some companies in the, call it community space of sports, community media space of sports that um, is, is quite uh, interesting to discuss. So we got a lot to cover. Din, man, welcome to the show. Hey, wait, 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 before we, before we do that, We'll go one step further back and start it off with some trivia because okay. I guess it was one of, Din, you can correct this, but like one of the original eight wonders of the world, at least man-made, 
that you have a tie to somewhere in Texas. So, oh yes. You know, so, so okay. we can even start with a little bit of trivia to kind of get us going. But yes, Din, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you both. I, you know, a show that's called Cusp uh, is is perfect uh, for this this topic. I mean, you're on the cusp of everything, and going back to the the eighth wonder of the world, the Houston Astrodome, which was the brainchild of my grandfather, uh, is in in many ways it's my twin brother. I was I was born March 27th, and the dome opened in the in the first half of April of 1965. So OG can stand for original. It can also stand for old. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say the dome and I are both still standing and we're in similar shape. Uh, but there's a, there's a, a great, it's funny, that building is just a great piece of the inspiration for everything I've ever been a part of. So it's, it's funny how you, you, everybody has a memory of going to their big first big sporting event and showing up and seeing the the grandeur of the setting. And I mean, I had that at a very early age, getting to roam around and look at press notes and and appreciate every angle, every nook and cranny of that place. And it was uh, inspiring to say the least, uh, to have a grandfather who went to the effort that he had to go to, to to get it built with the help of a lot of other really smart people who had deep pockets and who had great ambitions for the city of Houston to become quote major league. And the way it got done was to come up with a building where major league baseball could be played and owners could look at him and have the confidence that, okay, let's see if they can pull this off. And by God, they did. And it became a, you know, just a great motivating source for everything else that I pursued after that. I mean, including MLB advanced media. I mean, it really felt like that was kind of like, my astrodome to a great extent. So Dan, was that, now that I think about it, I, I never really um, contemplated this before. That was really the first big modern tricked out stadium, right? Of it was, modern, I mean- we'll call it modern sports. Yeah, it's really interesting. It, all the things that, that, that spawned from that and everything from the big electronic scoreboard with the sponsors all over it to dugouts that were made longer so he could say you're buying a seat behind the dugout the dugouts were longer so they could have more seats to sell behind the dugout. So he was, you know, it was all about marketing. It was all about show business. The, the biography of his life was called the grand huckster. Uh, so, you know, my grandfather had this energy. he kind of had this Bill Veck business sense that was um, next level. And so the dome itself, you know, climate controlled venue, venue that could host events outside of the major core sport that's played there done on a massive scale. And it really kind of became this, this great sort of poster facility for having concerts and having a rodeo and, and having uh, all sorts of other, you know, Muhammad Ali fighting there and bringing in Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra and, and Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs and the birth of March madness. I mean, Eddie yeah. Einhorn talked for years about how, you know, when they had this idea to put on that, that university of Houston, UCLA basketball game, uh, that that was the beginning in many ways of March Madness. Um, in fact, I think the book that Eddie did was called When March Became Madness or How March Became Madness uh, was really a, a lot about the, the the beginnings and the seed that was planted in the Astrodome. And, um, you know, for people who don't know, uh, the person Din's talking about is Judge Roy Hoffines. Um, but my personal favorite memory of the Astrodome, other than Mets Astros 86 is bad news bears in breaking training because probably one of the most fun baseball movies of my youth. And I actually watched it this past week. It was on TBS or something, but 
to have pulled that off and have William Devane get up and say, let them play is one of the greatest moments in the history of sports taking place in the Astros. I, I just got chills because I was speaking two weeks ago to Bob Watson's son, wow. uh, the late great Bob Watson. And we talked about that moment yeah. and how, you know, Bob is remembered so much for that. And, and really he was, <laughs> he was so much more than that. You know, his first executive uh, African-American exec- executive to, put to you to to have the role of gm and to put together a world series team and people don't necessarily connect the dots to him and and really the yankees dynasty that was built starting with with the core four but watson mm-hmm. has fingerprints all over that uh, but so that story goes back to it's funny it ties into what i'm doing now with my life but but that was a fascinating thing because when when they were choosing the players to be involved in that film, my brother and I had moved to Southern California, grew up in, in Southern California and we're in school with all these Hollywood kids and two of whom were connected to the making of the original Bad News Bears and then the making of Breaking Training and they discussed which players should be involved. So I got to share with Bob Watson's son that my brother and I were the ones who suggested, you know, really needs, you need to get Bob Watson and Cesar Cedeno. So the yeah. fact that we actually had just this tiny bit of influence in terms of that occurring um, was, was super cool, but it just shows athletes, you know, before space jam happened and before, you know, a lot of things uh, there had been Jackie Robinson playing himself in a movie. There had been Mickey Mantle um, in, a, in a movie called safe at home. And that sort of stuff had, had occurred to a great extent, but that really is the one you sort of point to where athletes injected into film and how great it can be for the movie itself and for the athletes to have a kick and to have a memory and to do some things that, that uh, demonstrate their influence and popularity. Who are the, who are the two actors? I'm assuming one of them is Jackie Earl, Jackie Earl Haley, correct? Jackie Earl Haley. And the, the act this was actually the Mears brothers whose um, stepfather was involved in the production of that film um, as well as, you know, famous movies like in the heat of the night and as well as some other um, relatives of theirs involved in, in Disney and, and, um, and some other great, you know, great projects and great properties. So it's funny how small the world is and how mm-hmm. just that little thing of being students in a school with some kids who had a stepfather who was involved in the creation of the movie, that that's how, that's life. Um, Kevin Bacon game, you know, follows us, follows us everywhere. But yeah, that was such a, it was such a fun movie. Um, the first one was better, but that sequel was, was a great follow-up uh, because I just wish the original Engelbert had been in the movie. Um, I still get, I'm still bothered by that. The original catcher in the first Edmonds Bears, he was just so phenomenal, so good. And, and anyway, apologies to the guy who played, played Engelbert in the follow-up, but wasn't as good. And Tatum O'Neill. We needed Tatum O'Neill, I think, in that one as well, would, both of whom would have made it better. So, Dan, was, was all that an influence for you to think about getting into to sports journalism as, as, when you started at Baylor and then obviously develop, start developing your media career? The newspaper biz on the sports side it sounds like you had huge influences on, on on kind of your mindset as a as a young person it did i had i was i, I was tortured yet blessed uh more so blessed obviously but i wanted to be a ball player of course like everybody you know a lot of people most people many people and once i realized that i was all district was my steel my ceiling um and not all state that I needed to find another way to make sure that I could stay involved in sports. And so interestingly, I had this perspective of a grandfather who was an owner and who um, had some struggles toward the end of his life from a health standpoint, stress standpoint, and got spread too thin and, 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 you know, got himself in a situation where the, where the team wound up not being his anymore. Uh, you sort of 
take for granted the things you saw as a kid, like, oh, wow, how can I still be involved? I guess I don't just get to become the general manager of the team. I guess I don't just get to be the, the kid who was uh, born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. Um, no, I had to figure out, okay, what's my avenue? How do I, how do I pursue this? And it wasn't so much about money as much as it was passion in those days. You know, you're a kid and you're, you're playing ball, you're figuring out, okay, so I've got a somewhat of a way with words. I'm, I'm, I'm able to write. I relate to these players and these athletes and these teams and these people, and I want to tell their stories. So it all came back to the ability to tell their stories and to share their stories and the things that I saw and experienced. Um, I wanted to have avenues in which that could, that could really come through. It was a little odd, you know, as, as a journalist showing up at Astro Spring Training as a student at Baylor University, going to interview Nolan Ryan. And so in the, that at 86 Mets Astro series, I mean, I'm still in college at Baylor. And I got to go to spring training before that season and interview all of these great players. And, and, I, and I got treated, though, like a college journalist kid. I mean, the way baseball, play, baseball culture can be tough on a media person who's going to have their, um, you know, their will tested uh, and, and, their, and their, their resolve, you know, put, to the, put through the tasks. And I, so I, I met Hallinier. He wasn't a very friendly guy. Um, I remember being really disappointed about that. Uh, he just didn't want to answer all my questions. And I'm trying to write previews, you know, that would work, stand the test of time. And it wasn't that you could just tweet something out or you could post something right away. I mean, you literally, I was on spring break, sent, put, sent myself to Florida on spring break to do a bunch of Astro stories to take back and do in the Baylor, you know, baseball preview three weeks later. I'm asking all these questions about the season, anticipating stuff. And he's just a manager trying to run a team, but I got a real firsthand look at, okay, how do you sort of navigate and tiptoe around? And I wouldn't be treated like the, the owner's grandson. I was a kid coming in from college and they had no idea. And, and frankly, I didn't matter. He wasn't the owner anymore anyway. Uh, so I got to see how the other half lives and, and get that humble pie and, and understand, wow, there's a real distrust or at least um, reticence around conversations with reporters. And I'm kind of like, hmm, wow, I wonder why it's so hard to break through and, and pull effective conversation out of some of these, these famous people that you enjoy and that you admire. But, you know, Nolan Ryan was wonderful. Uh, he was just terrific. Took the time to you know, talk about a lot of cool things and, and uh, wound up with some good pieces out of that. But I got to see how the other half, other half lives. And it was, it was telling. But I, I did use that. Um, inspiration of the dome and my grandfather's connection and, and the fascination I had, you know, for my entire life with live baseball games and all of the things that happened before and after those games and all the events that occurred when the baseball team wasn't in town to make that building vibrant. So it was in my um, DNA from the very beginning. So Dan, on, on the other side of the coin, you were starting to do this in the, I guess, in the 80s, uh, mid to late 80s. Um, and like me and Joe, you were in the business when things started to go digital, uh, first with online publishing services like Prodigy, and then, of course, the commercial internet in 93, 4, and then the leagues and teams and media companies doing websites, things like that. While you practiced developed your craft of being a good sports journalist were you also mindful of like what was happening like in the bigger picture of media and this change that was coming very much so uh i i was there was a it was a it was a low ceiling and a daunting edge of a cliff that seemed near in old school newsrooms at that time uh you felt like 
And it's a stereotype to some extent that, you know, okay, the people who were in charge of quote, the internet were just the ones who had the high tech looking glasses. You know, it wasn't about their skill set. It wasn't about their business acumen. It wasn't about their, their storytelling capabilities. It was just like, okay, this is a tech person who's involved in the website for the newspaper. And to, I remember going to, from the Atlanta journal constitution to the Kansas city star. So before that, I'd been at the Arizona Republic. Before I went to the Houston Post, I learned about business Houston Post and how they had been bought out by, uh, um, shut down by Dean Singleton. And ironically enough, Dean Singleton had been associated uh, with somebody in the finance world who was detrimental in my grandfather's demise to some extent. And so I learned to hard, some hard lessons about business as it related to that. So I had my eyes wide open, went to Atlanta from there. Um, Atlanta was doing some things in the Olympics, uh, in the, in the 90, in the 96 games. And it was fascinating. And that's why I went there. Um, it's a great opportunity and digital was sort of happening there in 96. And, you know, it was, it was an interesting relationship that AJC Atlanta journal constitution had, we had the, the Richard Jewell thing happen. Occurred there and, you know, very eye-opening about storytelling and, and, and the rush to put content out. Um, and the internet didn't really have a whole big influence in that, but it had some. Um, I saw an increase in the urgency and the speed in which stories could get out um, in a traditional news organization that was not radio, not TV. So I went to Kansas City and I went there largely because ABC and ESPN were involved there. And I thought, okay, that's the bridge to synergy between where I am and where my frustration is with where we're going in our ability to get content out and to reach more people. Because when I went to Atlanta, I had chosen Atlanta over Starwave which was doing wow. the website wow. for ESPN. So the original, so I went to Paul Allen's house and I got to go um, play basketball there with a bunch of folks who were involved with ESPN. Like Mike Slade and those guys. And Tom yes, Fletcher yeah, stuff. yeah, Jeff Reese. Jeff Reese. Yeah, That's ESPN, funny. ESPN yeah. net sports zone. Right. Um, I that rolled I right off the, the URL. It was such an awkward URL. Yeah, yeah right off the tongue, man. And yeah. so I went there and I was so, you know, I went to a, a game at the Kingdom. The Mariners are playing Ken Griffey Jr. And and uh, I'm, I'm at Paul Allen's house shooting baskets. And, and I still didn't go there, which shows you how smart I was. I um, went to the AJC instead. And I went to the Kansas City after that. And I'm like, hmm, beating my head against the wall. I'm kind of like, wow, I just, now I'm in that. Now I'm a little bit landlocked. I'm in Kansas city, which is by the way, one of the great towns in this country. Uh, love Kansas city, just a great, amazing um, place, highly underrated and had a blast there, except a little bit landlocked and, and still in that frustration mode of, okay, what's going on the website. And now Knight Ritter owns us instead of Disney and cap cities and ABC, what's going on with my plan. I know that God laughs at your plans, but he's, He's belly laughing um, at me. And, and so I was, I was uh, in a mode of going on this hunt for, okay, how do I get closer to the intellectual property? How do I get closer to, um, if Disney and ABC are gone from me and they're not owning the Kansas City Star and I can't set up this great thing that would become kind of the athletic of ESPN, which was you know kind of the vision and the hope when you go to a place like that. And I realized that wasn't the case. And so my wife and I discussed it and it was just like, okay, I either need to be in New York or LA because that's where everything seems to be happening. It could have been Bay area, but you know, I just realized I needed to be in sort of a coastal environment where there would be more of a chance to um, be right in the, in the, the, the center of the activity and where the money is and where the decisions are getting made uh, and where the biggest bets were happening. Um, so I made that decision and, and I wound up uh, betting on myself in the process for the, 
the baseball job at MLB Advanced Media. It was a cold call from Spencer Stewart, a gentleman named Harry Summerdike, uh, who lives up there in Stanford. And he made the phone call and we were discussing what the opportunity was. I'm sitting here and thinking serendipitously, wow, I was in Phoenix when Jerry Colangelo got the deal done to build the uh, stadium and to, and to have the, the, the tax issue there with Maricopa County and get the Diamondbacks to come to come to Arizona. And I was in Houston when Drayden McLean was there and all of a sudden they had a work stoppage and they had Jeff Bagwell as the MVP. And I was Atlanta the only year the Braves won the World Series. And all of these people are influential in this process. I'm talking to the guy from Spencer Stewart. I said, my granddad owned a baseball team. I, I went to Chavez Ravine in Southern California as a kid, as often as I could, changing two different buses, going through Hollywood. And this job is, sounds like it's made for me. So he was calling me to find, you know, who do you know? You know, the recruiters work. They want to know who you know and who you can recommend. I said, well, I recommend myself. <laughs> and so, so I had the conversation and talked to my wife and I thought, I don't care who's running the play. I don't care what they're doing. This is, this is gold. You get into MLB where they're actually trying to bet on a separate company to leverage the rights of the league to do something spectacular. And I just had this, this level of excitement around the parallels to my granddad having a baseball stadium and a baseball stadium that could do more than just baseball, but become something that's vibrant and exemplary that I wanted to be a part of that. And I wanted, I was determined to go get that job. Um, and wound up between me and another person. And before you know it, I'm talking to Bud Selig and Bob Dupay and Bob, Dome, Bob Bowman, and I'm making the best effort I can to get in there. And, and I start on the same day as Noah Garden and the three of us just, uh, you know, formed the building blocks. The real building blocks were the owners putting in the money they did, setting up the business the way they set it up uh, and giving us the rights to go run with it so that we could really go eat what we kill. Yeah. Tim, before we talk about what, what you did, there, all the interesting things that you guys did over the next 15 years. You were working in the business on the journalism side, for on the media side, where you're the, the subject you primarily covered, baseball, the teams, Major League Baseball, started because of digital, started to get into the media business directly. This was a, is a kind of a big thing that developed in the 90s, because typically teams and leagues were not really truly in the media business. They weren't really going direct to consumer much with media, but that all changed obviously in the mid nineties when leagues started doing websites, teams started doing websites, et cetera. Did, did you have uh, any kind of impression of what MLB, how MLB at that point before you joined was handling things? Like, do you, do you feel like they were getting it? Um, I, you know, I didn't, uh, I, I, I mean, I, did but I didn't. I, I did think I did think about it, and I didn't think they were handling it exceptionally, which is why I viewed it as having such a great upside. I, I thought that it was it was controlled too much by public relations, and it didn't resonate enough necessarily with the fan base. So that's why I thought it was a great opportunity, having come from it where I had at least enough sensitivity to understand look what it's like to be on the other side, to have a family that owns a team and that you know hangs on every word that's being written about him uh, about the team, and from that vantage point. Uh, but I also realized, look, somebody's got to come in and put the electric fence in a different place. The voltage is way too high on this electric fence that exists within league-owned and operated media, controlled media. And the fans wanted to have a voice. I said, you know, the team doesn't go out and eavesdrop on every fan within the stadium and just sit right there and tell them what they can and can't talk about. And I knew that this was an interactive forum and venue in which conversation needed to occur about everything. Um, and, you know, the, the quickest way to do that, frankly, was to go populate our company 
with people who were credible storytellers that already had a level of editorial independence from out from out from the front office. But I remember, you know, talking even to Stan Caston about it. And it's kind of like, you know, there was a beat writer specifically that maybe wasn't as, as, as friendly to the team or as trusted by the team, but there was a feature writer who was. And so I, I knew in these various markets, people who had the, you know, now you call it a contact list at that time, you called it a Rolodex, but people who had the Rolodex at that time and had the, the, the capability of getting a returned phone call. It's like, you didn't want to have a bunch of reporters populating this environment who weren't getting information or weren't used to working nights and weren't used to traveling and came from a, a vantage point of thinking that it was only a marketing vehicle. So we saw this opportunity to touch the fan bases with some folks who could resonate and provide authenticity and demonstrate that, that this was a new, um, new and more independent voice that would be leading itself to bringing people into the fold because what you want to do is, is attract people to your business with authenticity. Um, and at the same time, you don't need to go off the rails and be a gotcha, you know, maniac about what you're doing, but by populating our company with people who thought that way and who had that credibility and who wanted to run with independence and that I could stand between them and management to play publisher even more so than editor allowed me to wear the business hat and to think more thoughtfully and carefully about, okay, how far can we go? You know, there was a list of things that you couldn't even write about on the league owned website. So when CBS Sportsline managed the MLB website, which was majorleaguebaseball.com, another one that rolled right off the tongue, um, you know, so Bowman and DuPay and others had already gotten MLB.com and, and, and brought into the, into, the, uh, into the mix. So we had a shorter URL, which was advantageous. But we had people who were going to tell stories and we were going to go, we were going to write about Pete Rose. If there was a controversy about Pete Rose, we were no longer going to pretend that that conversation wasn't occurring. There was discussion around steroids and it was something that they weren't touching on at all ever on a league website, but fans were talking about it and there were court cases happening and there were investigations happening and fans needed to know that at least they could discuss it, you know, in that venue. So I saw that there was a, a real opportunity. So early on, you know, we were dependent on e-commerce and we were dependent on storytelling to get traffic and to attract people into our fold, even before ticketing became started to take off. So then you had ticketing and obviously you have statistics. We had statistical challenges early on with the technology. We had to rip that up and, and do some other things and, and worked with uh, Corey Schwartz on our team uh, to help you know, elevate that and make that credible and polish it and fine tune it. But there were so many great people who came in and who were, were involved in, in elevating that. And, and it really happened mainly though, because we were an outside investment that was prepared to defend and innovate and defend and innovate and finally get on offense and get to where we could rack up some runs ourselves and, and show a vision and to, and to really push for some things that otherwise might've made people uncomfortable if it was happening within the existing infrastructure and ecosystem of people kind of working on moonlight to manage a website. It didn't work in newspapers. It wasn't going to work in a sports league. Tim, I'm sure when you, when you, the day comes and you write your memoirs, you're going to do a full accounting of all the interesting, crazy things you lived through at MLB advanced media, but we want to talk about the new stuff, but, but before we move on to the new stuff, just share, like what were the biggest or best memories or milestones of the, of your, of your time at BAM tech? Cause it really, and I, we urge our students to like consider and study the history of, of BAM tech. Cause it really is an amazing 
development in the history of sports business. So just share, share a couple of key takeaways. Well, first of all, there was the, the awesome fact that baseball owners wanted to be on that board. The energy around being involved with that operation was genuine and uh, significant. I mean, it was vital to us having the, the success that we had. So board support from ownership. I mean, it wasn't, a, you know, and no offense to any team president. A team president is obviously a, a, a dream job. But to have these owners who are leaning forward and being a part of what it is that we were building was, was uh, you know, it was fascinating. So just to, just to be a fly on the wall to some extent, you know, as Jerry Reinsdorf is talking to, to, to Jerry Reinsdorf, Jerry Reinsdorf is talking to David Glass and talking to Drayton McLean and, and getting input from, from John Henry on these matters. And even it's just the small talk pieces of it where they, you see in real life that their fans just like people on the other side who are now getting that out of Stephen Cohen, they're, they're seeing, oh, wow, he's, he's a fan. He's saying, I hope we score a run here. Um, same thing would happen the first 10 minutes of every board meeting was just the banter about what did the Royals do last night? What did the, what did the Astros do last night? What did the Red Sox do? And the context of the game that was coming up and, you know, Reinsdorf about the White Sox. Obviously, there was great passion. So to see the authenticity, the genuineness of the passion that they had was magnificent. Um, the other was just this nature of the way, the way Bob, um, would run, uh, Bob Bowman would put together a staff and have it be a flat organization. And the benefits of that flat organization where people really were put to the test to get in and present, present their ideas and be prepared, um, for that uncomfortable, the uncomfortable challenges as it related to those ideas. So it was an entrepreneurial, um, fast paced and and hard charging um opportunity and there were so many memories associated with that but also i remember you know one trip with bob where we were in arizona and it was a really pivotal turning point for us i mean the bubble was bursting and and there was a, a real question about whether the business was even going to exist um it was a real you know first year 9 11 happened and and <clears throat> then, then the internet bubbles you know so it had a so-called burst to it and there were concerns but there were two things that happened one was that David Glass, in, in talking to Bob, said, if these guys are really talking about, you know, discontinuing this effort, I'll write a check right now. I'll, wow. I'll, I'll buy it. And when David Glass said that, that, uh, that was game over. Everybody said, okay, well, David wants it. They really are onto something. He has, an up, he has a really good seat at this game, and we're going to trust his judgment. But as big as that was, you know, being in the, uh, in the rental car with uh, – with Bowman as we're driving from Tucson to Phoenix. There was a GM meeting in, in Tucson and there was another meeting with a bunch of club reps up in Phoenix and we're on with Ticketmaster. And I've got a, you know, I've got a basically riding shotgun uh, in this conversation that where I saw Bob artfully and aggressively um, make our business over, you know, in that moment, which was doing a deal with Ticketmaster to agree to pay for the rights to be able to sell tickets in a digital and interactive landscape, which they didn't have the rights to do with the official marks and logos and a, and a direct affiliation um, with the teams online. And that was you know, such a, a brilliant and pivotal game changer for us. Um, so you know, that's the kind of thing that you know, stands out to me is just being around for these pivotal discussions um, and that leadership. And then the other thing I would jump to uh, beyond doing that amazing Ticketmaster deal was the wherewithal to 
dare to go where a league hadn't gone. So not only from a question of editorial credibility and, and all of that sort of thing and being aggressive and, and having a, a separate business that could grow and that, that could blossom, but the open-mindedness um, when the idea was raised and when we, when we had the discussion and when it, you know, I, I, I take a lot of pride in, in what happened with what BAM tech, how BAM tech became to be something where they could still have the, the cake that was left over, which is MLB advanced media, which still exists. This is part of MLB, but the BAM tech thing was a creation where it's like, okay, what can we do for others? Like what we're like, we're doing for baseball. How can we make our intellectual property available? How can we allocate resources to begin to form a business that becomes uh, a streaming partner and an, and an app builder for others who do what we do? Because it was very much um, similar in, in the way my mom parlayed the Astrodome being a facility for baseball. And then all of a sudden it was for concerts and it was for other sporting events. She was the person entertaining all those people when they came and she took that and she turned that into a career in, in songwriting and singing and moving us to Southern California. That it was like, that's what opened the door. So it opened the door really for us. And I had these itches. I came from sports departments. I came from a grandfather who did these things. I had this mindset of, okay, so how can we do something that creates an exit opportunity for our owners and enriches us ourselves and, and, and everybody who's operating some incentive to continue to build and, and, and be um, business developers. It was really this, this great situation where we were encouraged to think that way. And it was a lot of people. So we were encouraged to think that way. We, we put together um, some deals early on that had to do with music. Uh, again, similarities to the Astrodome to some extent, but all of a sudden we're doing the website for Bob Marley's estate. And we're doing a website for Guns N' Roses. And we're doing a deal with AVP Volleyball to, to stream some of their stuff. And, and you know, we had some, some hits and misses in that world. Uh, so that's a lot of what the energy was. It was very cool that we had this diverse landscape and this ability to consider doing things like partnerships with Elton John and Guns N' Roses and stuff that, you know, didn't necessarily work out um, terrifically, Queen Latifah. And then we started to figure out, okay, what is the, what's the best way to evolve this idea, this opportunity? And there were a lot of fascinating ways to do it. And it helped us innovate on baseball. So the important thing was, it was always about like a team doing a post-game concert. That helps drive people to come to the game and more value to their ticket. So they're going to go to the experience. They're more likely to go to the game because now there's a post-game concert that may give them a lift of say 10,000 fans. That means a lot to everybody, even on just a per cap basis of the concessions and the parking and, and, and everything that goes in, in, in and around the concourses. Um, you know, that all mattered. And so to see that we had this, this ability to get creative and to propose these things that were exciting that could lead to um, smart business uh, dealings as well that impacted baseball positively and, and impacted the investors in the business, the owners um, and founders and others, you know, it, it was, uh, it was great. And to see how it evolved and how it, it led to, you know, significant relationships with places like HBO and with the NHL and, and with a lot of others, but, but early on uh, it was clear because there was a consortium that you guys had some familiarity with too, but it was far back as 2002 where people were coming in the room from the other leagues and we were just kind of talking about, okay, what can we all do together? What can we all do together? And NASCAR was in there and, and folks from uh, NFL and NBA. And so you see what a small world it was. It was such a great move for me to go to New York and have opportunity to, to be in these in, involved in these discussions and, and 
yeah, that was the thing. Teamwork, camaraderie, innovation, and, and the setting and the culture. And I think it was fantastic. And I believe it can be repeated, just not in exactly the same way. Uh, you know, every, you evolve and you learn and you continue to shake trees and you just go about your business and try to make exciting things happen. So, so in that visionary tree shaking, uh, as we pivot to kind of where you are right now, it's, it's almost like you're like a point guard to use another sports analogy, looking down the floor and watching how things developed, whether that was with the Astrodome or whether it's with BAM Tech or where you went into media. Is there one thing that you looked at and you said, man, we missed that shot? Or how come we didn't do that? And I don't know whether it was CBD or something else that's really now prominent now, but as you look over that whole path to where you get to today, being able to, again, project forward, was there one that, you know, you said, well, that was the biggest miss. I don't know how we didn't see that one coming. I was, I would say OTT is, is, is something I feel pretty strongly about there that I, I think that what happened with Netflix um, and how that occurred and the, the, the brilliance of that, you know, about one of the best books I read in the last couple of years was just the, you know, uh, that will never work. Uh, and it was about the making of Netflix and how they took the, the DVD world and they took it to become something of a, of a great entertainment uh, vehicle and platform. And so you took a business called DVDs and um, frankly, it was born, you know, born just as the transition from VHS to DVD was occurring. And the, the brilliance of the decision that they made to realize they were in the subscription business and they weren't in the DVD business at all. Um, they were in the subscription business, not even knowing that it was kind of accidental to some extent, the subscription business they were in was, okay, you can get unlimited DVDs for the month and that's your subscription. But whether it was accidental or not, it became this OTT subscription business that has to do with what we all would now call shoulder programming in life. And it's all about entertainment. And it's all about that demographic that everybody seems to want the most, which is the one that tunes into the Super Bowl and the one that tunes into the Olympics because of the backstories on the athletes is because they care about being entertained and they don't necessarily want it to be quote appointment viewing. Uh, so I think that it was a, I don't want to say it was a miss, um, but it was definitely an opportunity and probably the next wave of what could have occurred. And I think it's, it's the next wave of what still can occur through the leverage and influence and popularity of sports. I'm trying to think of something else. I mean, I know we had, you know, a few things that I would say what we, what we missed on and what everybody still misses on is solving this riddle of blackouts and the availability mm -hmm. of programming and the organization of how to access that programming. There is a gigantic opportunity and not just at the last two minutes of a game, the last 15 seconds of a game, though I know there's some activity around that idea right now too, which I think is great. Uh, but you take with sports betting, how important that is with the lag that's so evident, um, even in sports betting, where you'd almost rather follow a game on a sports app because you're seeing what happens there 30 seconds faster than what you're seeing in a telecast. So the technology is still needing to, to, to catch up and be truly live. Uh, but the ability to discover the programming and to not just gripe and moan about what I can't see when maybe I actually can and it's just not being presented to me in a way that's as elegant and thoughtful and smart uh, because the technology is there to crack that code and to really figure out how, look, if I'm going into a setting, so I think this, this was a bit of a miss, Joe, at, at, at BAM, that we weren't probably as helpful as we should have been as it related to directing people to how to do what they want to do as opposed to what we want them to do. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so when I go into a, a league, a league app of any kind, I'm trying to go watch a game. It should be a lot easier for me to, even if I click on it and I'm blacked out to have a fast app switch solution that will send me to the way I can watch it, as opposed to just this roadblock that says, sorry, you're SOL and good luck. Mm-hmm. Well, the reality is if, if, it, if I have it on my app or if I have it in my ecosystem, if I have it in my profile, that I do have the rights on this other thing to be able to watch that because I'm a Comcast subscriber or because I'm a DirecTV subscriber or because I'm a, an AT and, I have an AT&T phone or because I have a Verizon phone, just make it seamless and make it a lot yeah. easier for me. You're, so, a, you're authenticated. I mean, yeah, you're authenticated. I, yeah, we spoke to Bo Han a, a few weeks ago on the podcast and yeah. obviously that's what Buzzer's trying to do. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, that's, a, that's a really good point. And it sounds as though so I know a little bit about turn to equity, but it sounds like you just gave a preview of what you're into right now with turn to equity. So why don't we turn our attention to the present and what you and your partners are doing with turn to just, just let everybody know. Cause I'm, I'm sure not everybody knows exactly what you guys are up to. Why don't you describe the vision of turn to equity? Well, so turn to really came together because um, Dusty Baker being one of your partners, how do you, how do you say no to that? First of all, um, Dusty Baker is just, uh, he's just a terrific, terrific guy. And, and he is, uh, a man for all seasons. Um, anyone who can just drop names like Eric Clapton and talk about an authentic friendship that he has with Eric Clapton. And he's a, you know, 70 plus manager of a, of a first place baseball team who played for the Dodgers and co-invented the high five accidentally with Glenn Burke. Okay. Sign me up, uh, sign me up for that. Uh, and so Dusty will get on and we'll talk about stories and we'll talk about people and we'll talk about life and talk about athletes. And so he is really like this, um, you know, just, just a terrific role model to a great extent and example of why we are, what we are and who we are. Um, so Dusty's into technology. Um, he's also into Baker family wines. Uh, so he's an entrepreneur that people don't necessarily know about. He's into like alternative uh, energy sources, uh, and, and some other, some other intriguing and exciting investments, but he is just like this great example of an athlete or a sports figure more important than anything. It's about sports figures and the influence that they have and the networks that they have and what their life journey looks like and what are the tools that help them in that life journey. So how does a player or an athlete get discovered? So what we do in our partnership, and we have really two incubated properties that gets supported by acquisitions that we've been negotiating over the last 18 months, um, negotiating acquisitions in a pipeline through a holding company that help athletes get discovered on their way up, which is unlocking your potential and having these tools to be able to do so. They're all participating in in camps and they're participating in showcases and they're participating in uh, trying to get discovered either on their high school team or through their travel team to get a scholarship or to get drafted. Um, across all sports, but baseball is, you know, is, is, is a sweet spot for us because a lot of us have great relationships there. Um, but we have them across other sports as well, which is exciting about this because it's about these athletes and these kids and their parents and their coaches getting involved in an ecosystem where they can get discovered. So we have some event operators that we're discussing um, some exciting deals with on the one hand um, through a, a, a venture and a, a platform called players without the E to so to avoid mistakes, P-L-A-Y-R-S um, is what that platform is. And that's really about unlock your potential, become the best that you can be, hear from these athletes and others who have done this. And there's some people involved in that space. And you, you know some of them, but I don't, I don't want to 
you know, leave anybody out, but people who are involved in that space of operating events and helping you network and get good feedback and coaching and a little bit of a Peloton type of a universe where, okay, you're really hearing from people you're interacting and you're getting good information and you're doing smart deals. So we're looking for people who've already stood a little bit of the test of time and who've already broken through and who have achieved uh, profitability or they've, they've got market share that is really compelling. So we can blend something together that's a safe bet. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum is what do you do with that reach once you've achieved it? And what's really that camaraderie you're getting in that ecosystem of parents, players, and coaches, and even executives across sports. So, you know, we're all on LinkedIn, we're all on Twitter, and we're all in these different places, but I don't feel like there's one that, that um, brings me into a universe that's as gratifying as what it is to walk into that first stadium for the first time and feel like, mm -hmm. oh, wow, I belong on the suite level with all these people. This is who I want to hang with. I belong in the press box because I'm a media guy. We have all this to talk about. Or I belong down in the broadcast truck because I'm creating the content that goes in there. So a product called GoatNet, which is really my baby and, 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 uh, and brainchild within this thing, is I think it's what I brought to the party more than anything, was this vision for a thing called GoatNet is to be about greatness and to be about storytelling. And so people who've become great, what is the story that they have? And what is the media that's available around that? And I talked to Joe about this a while back was just about even starting with sports movies. So you started me out talking about Bad News Bears and Breaking Training. And these sports movies are all out there in this landscape. And so part of what GoatNet can really do is bring people together through the storytelling that happens in sports, but do it with companies that already exist in the streaming space, in the OTT space that understand influence and how you can leverage influence the way the athletic did brilliantly to get a bunch of sports writers who were either disenfranchised or, or unappreciated and get them to tweet to their followers that, Hey, I'm at this new place. Now you should come read my work because now they've centralized it. They've done it in a really smart way. I believe that's lacking in sports from a human interest standpoint. I believe because the rights fees have gone up so high for the live television, that their ability to tell stories that connect the dots between the events that almost serve as the virtual tailgate that we all sort of have in our heads. Um, as we go to events, we know who we're going to hang with, we know where we're going to go and what we're going to talk about. But what's going to make me excited and interested in sports in everything but the live so that we can be additive to the industry, help them sell tickets, help them help fans connect better with the athletes. So it's not just all of this ambush that goes on. And we see ambush every day. It's clever stuff. People are, and some of them are going and getting licenses and doing things like what Breaking Tea has done and you know, others who like create things around the athletes and their brands. But to create that universe in which the athlete and the stories about sports, which aren't even for the most part, sports stories at all. I mean, it's a story about Trey Mancini, you know, overcoming cancer. It's a story about, um, you know, everybody has a blind side in them. If you give me enough time just to have a conversation with someone to onboard them into this setting called GoatNet, we're going to find out what your blind side story is. And mm -hmm. man, people just love it. I mean, you know, I was talking to Dusty recently about his favorite sports movie. I think it was like The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. And it was just fascinating. So, and that just sort of leads into, well, why was that your favorite movie? What's this? And all of a sudden it led into a conversation about him as a player, not being able to watch the end of episodes of Gunsmoke because he was afraid for his life where he was in the deep South. At that time, he had to be where he was going to sleep by dark. Otherwise he was in trouble. Wow. So it got mm -hmm. really heavy all of a sudden. And you're just kind of like, well, okay, why is nobody organizing the great storytelling that exists in the sports universe in a way that's cost-effective, that's attractive to sponsors, and that's helpful to the industry? And that's what GoatNet is. Um, 
I'm deeply motivated and excited about the pieces that are coming into place to make that happen um, everywhere from the high school level to the elite athlete level to the um, unappreciated athlete and, and storyteller level all the way on up to, um, to the legacy athlete and people who've even left us. It's funny. One of the things, and I pointed this out to someone yesterday, similar along those lines where I wish there was a better curation of this is what Substack is trying to do for printed, printed word right now where, you know, this week Grant Wall is now on Substack and Mark Stein is now on Substack, but darn if I could find where the hell all these guys are together so that I could curate stuff and then maybe put them together or be in a community where we want to talk with the best in baseball who don't no longer write for, you know, a newspaper or for baseball America or, you know, an audience of, of producers who've made sports films. So, so I'm, I'm a big believer in this. I hope it works. I think it would be a great way to kind of figure out kind of how to re-engineer this stuff and give people all that, that authentic storytelling for what they want and where they can get it. So, you know, it's, it's uh, great, Joe. And it takes, look, it takes more than one person to have a conversation. So, so that's, what's so great, right? You can really connect these people who are, who are fabulous, whether it's, you know, Gary Myers is a good friend and has so many great yeah. NFL contacts and some things that I know he can do and bring to the party and, and activate and friends like Casey Stern uh, have done a great job and what he's done on MLB network radio and what he did with, with NBA his NBA gig. Uh, people like Howard Balzer, who's, who's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. great relationships, with the hall of fame, the NFL and on and on and on. Some people I know who have great, great ties to tennis and you know, just all of these amazing stories that happen there. And then it's funny because then you start to intersect with um, the entertainers of the world who sort of want to be athletes themselves. And, you know, I go back to probably the most fun day that I had at MLB was when we did uh Will Ferrell playing for 10 different teams in one day and did that in partnership with HBO and Funny or Die. And you saw how much the players, you know, really gravitated. It was Marcus, Marcus Simeon and, and, and Josh Reddick and the, in the not knowing quite how to treat this celebrity who was in their clubhouse. And you saw how it kind of loosened up, you know, through the course of the event where, you know, later in the day, we're having to call a dugout and say, Will Ferrell's going to land a helicopter, you know, in center field. Can you please make a pitching change because we're running behind. Um, you know, that, that whole fraternity camaraderie and discussion and, and, and excitement around that. And you find out all the people who can be helpful to telling these stories because it's a person of celebrity who might want to come in and participate in one of those stories that'll surprise people. And it's a lot of fun because one of the other interviews we, we put together back at MLB was Getty Lee with Randy Johnson backstage. And Randy being an amazing photographer and rock and roll fan and, and Getty Lee being a complete uh, baseball seam head fantasy nerd um, was not something that everybody knew. But I'll tell you, when we did stuff like that, it was conspicuous by its, by its lack of a, of a logical place to live on a platform. So an official league and team site, they're much more known for what game is happening next and what's happening in that game right now and how do I get tickets and what's the next promotion. And what they don't have necessarily that I think is, is, is the effective and elegant thing is the thing that pulls together the creativity that goes on their scoreboards and the creativity of the people involved and, and really wanting to help market these sports. And they say, okay, the athlete needs to, to be better at, at sort of marketing himself. Well, that's where creativity has to come into play. How do you help them market themselves by coming up with great ideas and shows and programs for which they can be guests as opposed to necessarily having to carry the freight? Because not everybody's going to be Mike Tyson and, and be able to do a, a, a podcast that suddenly everybody finds out about because it's he's got a knack for it. 
sometimes it's just better to give them cameos and, and offer guest gigs so you can help them promote the thing that is in their wheelhouse. That's their passion off the field, whether it's cooking or whether it's, you know, Mike Trout and weather, you know, has anybody really done enough with Mike Trout being a weather geek? And is there a way to really play off of that, play into that, lean into the thing that's really good for them as opposed to trying to do one size fits all. Hey, so, Dan, what kind of, I'm curious about the feedback you've been getting from the different constituents you need to bring into the fold to build GoatNet. So investors, players, entertainment companies, rights holders, et cetera. So that's the first part of the question. The second part is what is the process to get to, to the promised land of GoatNet, like launching it uh, at some point, I suppose, in 2022 or 2023? I'm not sure how long it's going to take, but talk about that for a minute. We, we, we will launch by next year. Uh, no, no doubt in my mind about that. And so I, the process, I look, the way I've approached it is if I wanted to mimic uh, the upside of something like BAM, then you better get some pieces in place that mimic the departments that you had at a place like BAM. So BAM was seeded by owners committing $3 million a piece, uh, but they were doing it around real rights and real tried and true categories that would be beneficial to the business. So I mentioned e-commerce. I mean, it was important to be able to have a shop. And, and I mentioned things like, um, you know, articles and content. So to have a cadence around the business plan. So fine tuning a business plan, obviously that takes time. Um, what I've spent my time on, frankly, though, is identifying companies that have been around for a handful of years that are experiencing success, but also realizing that they've got a better shot if they become a part of something that's larger than the thing they've created in their, in their niche. Uh, and so we've done that, vetted out five companies, maybe six that have agreed to terms that, that, that make sense for both for an investor and for them. So create a win-win situation for them. That takes time. That has taken time. And then to articulate that vision and to buy yourself enough runway so that you can connect those dots, put those companies together because they're, they're, they're cash flow positive and because they, they're, they're on board with this blend of being part of sort of a hold co um, approach to setting this up. We've done that. We've set up, set the stage for a wonderful opportunity. So shame on us if we can't now go and make the rounds and get the money raised so that it all becomes reality. So I feel um, really excited about how that's going to work from here forward. So now it's really about getting in front of private equity, getting in front of sports team owners, having this conversation and articulating the opportunity and showing why it's a big win for them. And look, that's what you have to do. You've got to go and, and um, articulate what it is that you put together and do it succinctly and do it in a way where you're not, you know, drunken sailors who are just going to go, you know, with, without fiscal restraint in putting a great package together. I mean, on the one hand, you can go buy companies and take a huge chance um, that your launch angle is going to be, you know, so wonderful that you're going to hit the ball 500 feet over the Fanatics billboard at Fenway Park, or you can, you know, make the bet that what you're doing is coming up with a great game plan that looks an awful lot like Moneyball, uh, where you've put the pieces together that add up to the result that's going to be the eventual series of 500 foot home runs over the Fanatics billboard at Fenway Park. And that's really what I've done. And so now it's about, going on the road and, and articulating that message. So we've, we've, we've been funded to, uh, you know, about a million dollar level and we're going to close out a convertible note and looking for that lead. So going and getting the lead is critical because you want it to be someone who's adds both strategic value um, and obviously some, you know, economic firepower. So we're, we're, um, we're in a good spot and it's going to take, uh, it's going to, it's just going to take perseverance and, and making sure that, 
that somebody recognizes that we're the right team to bet on and that it's the right collection of, of resources that are involved in it, uh, fine tune it and, and show the ability to pivot as necessary. Um, but really replicate a lot of what the way it was done at BAM. But I think the key difference is it's taken that great low hanging fruit that is influence across sports that is now wildly disaggregated and, and show the way. Um, so you know, it takes a while to sort of, to get that, um, to get that story out there and, and have people um, signed off and, and on board. But I'm, I'm really super excited about how it's going to happen. Real amazing. Really super interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I just have one more biz question then we can wrap with our final questions unless Joe has something else, but uh, nope, it's this, you, you are, you are, you've been in the business a long time. You're a very thoughtful guy, very, um, um, really good perspective on the breadth and complexity of this business. What do you think is the biggest threat to the sports business as we move through the rest of this decade? Uh, well, I think, look, the challenge is, is complacency and the, you know, the numbers game, it, you know, they, mm -hmm. they, they do tend to rise across the board and, you know, you're the NFL and you can always go do a new, great, amazing TV deal. Uh, but, you know, people's habits and attention span and, you know, their, their need to sort of be involved and engaged in the event. I, I think that it's a little bit bulletproof because the evolution is on our side. Um, and I, and I believe that the sports betting is a big part of why that I'm so optimistic about it. Um, I would say this sports betting is, you know, double-edged to an extent. It's going to hurt a lot of people and got to be mindful of that as you, as you look at that space, because I mean, it's all, it's, it's pretty, pretty easy to engage in live betting where it's legal now and maybe to make a big mistake. I guess the good thing is people have to put the money into the account. So you, you do really have to have the money to be able to bet to do that. But I don't want to get off track, you know, with, with what I think the, the threat is. So that's not really a threat. Um, I believe that that's part of why the threat is somewhat de-risked uh, because that interest of the hardcore is going to be there. I think it's the casual fan that is the one that the sports ecosystem has to worry about the most and should worry about the most. And which is why I'm, 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 I'm delighted to, to basically have a vision and a passion about specifically addressing that, that the mm -hmm. casual fan is the one that, that should be uh, of the greatest concern because they are awfully entertained by a, endless options related to how to occupy their time with the thing that's in their palm of their hand, you know, called a phone. And the phone provides opportunities for people to uh, do things that are, you know, somewhat narcissistic, but at the same time, entertaining for them. And so I think that the fact that you've got people uh, engaging in things that are, that are um, alternatives to the way it used to be, um, is a real threat uh, because you need TV ratings and you need attendance. Uh, you need interest. You need, you need consumers uh, buying products related to your brand. And so how is your brand being promoted and how is it being seen and not being disrupted too much by all of these other uh, more personal activities that are afforded to people um, because of, because of the, um, I don't know, the nature of things, the nature of this OTT landscape where you can watch anything you want, whenever you want on your own time, on your own dime, that all, if I just want some highlights here and there, I really care about it. And it's cool with me. If I get it 40 seconds after it occurred, if I'm a casual fan, I'm, I'm good with 40 seconds after it occurred. I'm good with maybe 40 minutes after it occurred. Sometimes people may be good with 40 hours after it occurred. 
So it's just about sort or of just a, a bunch of random highlights for that matter. Yeah. I mean, look, take, yeah. look, music went right. It's true. I mean, take and take music just as an example. I mean, I saw that there's a new Zach Brown band album and I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna go check Spotify. I'm not going to go to the record store and buy the, and buy the album anymore. I'm not going to go to iTunes and even buy the album anymore. I'm, okay. If it's on Spotify, I'm gonna listen to it. And so it's about availability of the product and about visibility of the product. Uh, but just as much about relevance of the product. Uh, so, so Joe, Joe, isn't it amazing how much connective tissue there is between these conversations? This, this particular part of the conversations reminded me of our, of our <laughs> well, um, for those paying attention, uh, a few months ago, Din, we had Josh Walker from Sports Innovation Lab on. And as you probably know, they issued a report about a year, a year, year and a half ago called the Fluid Fan. And they talked in a very thoughtful and I think really deep way about the challenge with young sports fans, particularly Gen Z, and they and they describe the fluid fan. But it's almost like what you're describing is almost trying to build a modern media company, which by definition would have to be OTT, in the image of a fluid fan mindset, which is not how most stuff is currently being run. As no, 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 100%. So it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thought. Yeah. yeah, we're in a we're in a world where people say, "How did we do it last year?" and then that's how they model what they're doing next year, as opposed to starting yeah. from scratch and saying, "How do we need to do it?" Exactly. And that, the how we need to do it part is the most fun part, and I think that's what reminds me of being at BAM was to go to MLB Advanced Media and to think about, okay, we start from scratch. We've got this this fresh snow that we can go trample. Um, if we go the wrong way, we know that we've fallen in too deep. But boy, this is exciting. It's exhilarating. It's fresh air. So to inject that fresh air into this category of shoulder programming of the of the of the dots that exist between events that people care about, and how do you get them to care about it more? You get them to care about the people who are involved in those events, so they want to see what those people are up to, and where where it's going to go next, and you know create those cliffhangers and create that passion around you know really having a a depth of of interest. In, in the people who are, whether that's a comedian putting on a comedy show or whether it's an actor or actress being involved in a movie or whether it is a, a sports figure or an athlete who's participating in a game of some kind. Um, when you have more of a vested interest in, in that person or personality, you want them to the same passion as they look forward to the next episode of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. Right. And, you know, those types of things have emerged and come into our world that weren't here necessarily as much before, um, but they're there. I mean, I can't wait till the next season of Ozark gets released and I know that I'm going to be hunkered down and I'm going to be checking it out. Mm-hmm. That's going to be 12 hours of my life. Right. And I know it. We can have a viewing party. I'm a huge fan too. So okay. No, I'm on board um, every, every episode. Joe, um, Din is actually ready for the final two questions. I prepped him in advance. So why don't you hit him? Hit him with these last two questions. Oh, no, no. Now my answers have to be perfect. Well, I was going to say, we're Ready? expecting big things now. Here we go. What's your favorite sausage? No, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> um, so at the end of every one of our shows, we obviously talk to everybody about two really important things. How do you stay involved and stay? How do you stay current on what's going on? What do you read? What do you listen to? And then what's the advice you give to either young people or people in transition in their careers? So I'll start with... Um jalapeno cheese sausage first of all there we go um, perfect yeah, i gotta I gotta give you that end of, end of end of interview yeah right i mean and go to hill country barbecue in manhattan i mean that that oh my gosh it's a great place yeah, i've been there it's fantastic my, yeah my friends in texas and kansas city will give me a hard time um we but have, by the way tom we have a new third question now that we're asking okay. <laughs> we'll have to change up the food every week though 
Yeah. So what, so what I read, I mean, I'll tell you what, Sportico has done a really good job of just jumping into the fray and, and, you know, getting, getting John wall street on, on that platform. So I get, mm-hmm. the, I get the double, double barrel Sportico email and the John wall street email. And, you know, I don't go a day without opening that there are a lot of emails that you delete. Those are not, those are not two of them. Um, and front office sports is right there, you know, in the, in the, in the conversation as well. So in terms of reading, you know, I look at their stuff. Uh, I'm a bit of a Twitter fiend as well. So I get a lot of information from Twitter and, and um, I'm pretty good at filtering it. Sadly, not everybody's all that great at filtering and muting, but I think I've mastered the art of filtering and muting uh, to some, to some extent. Uh, but that's, you know, that's, that's how I stay informed and keep up and, mm-hmm. and network with people to a great extent. You know, you get my, get my LinkedIn notifications and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but those are those are really good sources for a, from a standpoint of how I start my day uh, with podcasts. I mean, it's fascinating because they're I mean, you know, I started out with, you know, Serial and This American Life and and that sort of thing. And there was one called uh, Sports Wars um, that did a great job specifically on one that had the uh, four part series on baseball after 9-11. Uh, but then there's just, you know, specific personalities, you know, like Bomani Jones and, you know, what he does and people. uh, uh who've done uh, addition, you know, Joe Posnanski, a dear friend who does a great job um, in his, uh, in his podcast with Michael Schur, who, you know, the office and parks and rec and legendary stuff there. So I, you know, I tend to, to find what's hot and I, and I try to, you know, jump at those things and, and just enjoy those on a, on a semi-frequent basis. But yeah, sports wars definitely is one of them, but there are a couple of random ones. Um, there's one called how did this get made? So I am fascinated by Hollywood and films and, and content just so just to keep your creative juices going and understanding how different, uh, different things were put together that happened that, that, you know, maybe something as lousy as Ishtar uh, back in the day that was, uh, you know, uh, Warren Beatty and, and Dustin Hoffman, but how did this get made is, is a fascinating one to me. And, and uh, there's one called how to fail that Elizabeth day is the, is the host of, which is really helpful and interesting and, you know, and Conan O'Brien, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a, of a, you know, Conan O'Brien aficionado. And so he has a, you know, Conan O'Brien needs a friend is the name of his podcast. And I do recommend that highly. And, and I think that, you know, some of the ESPN stuff that comes out is, is good. And I think things like all the smoke, Steven Jackson and Matt Barnes do that one. So you think about athletes and the voice that they have and what they have to say, I mentioned Bomani and, I think that Jalen Rose and David Jacoby do a good job on the one that they put together. And, and so, yeah. And I mentioned Tyson earlier, uh, hot boxing with Mike Tyson. You don't have to agree with everything that's that, that, that the guests that, that come on there from time to time, but man, that's an out-of-body experience that, that, uh, that somehow I, I can't get enough of. Cool. All right. Now and then the so you, you passed the first part of the quiz. Now let's move to the second part of the quiz. All right. The look, the advice part. So I have, I have, four kids. Um, one's a Syracuse graduate, one's a Mizzou graduate, one's a Penn State graduate, and the other is still in high school. And, you know, the advice I, so I'm, I'm, I'm used to giving advice and for it not to be completely followed. Um, I will say though that, that I don't see quite enough of like a grab the broom culture when you get into an opportunity and to my first advice is, is just to not sort of just nod your head and act like you get something if you don't get it. If you don't get it and you don't understand it, don't pretend that you do. Just be real and connect on a human level as best as you possibly can in, that process, in the process of whatever it is you're doing. So I think honesty and frankness um, 
those things really break through um, in a conversation as you're pursuing something. And, and the other is to really think about taking a job for what it is in that moment and not necessarily what it can become. So you're not disappointed and underwhelmed by the experience. So you go into it appreciating exactly what that job is and then plan to just go in and kick absolute tail in that role so that you are going to pass the people who are, who are, who are driving at the incorrect speed in every lane on that interstate just because you've gone in and you've, you've really absorbed and embraced the opportunity that you've been presented. Um, and the other is be willing to go where necessary to make it happen outside of your own comfort zone. So leave your ego at the door and just be willing to go to a place that's just kind of like, uh, doesn't maybe feel like you're starting off on the, on the floor that you had anticipated starting on in midtown Manhattan but it just may be that it's better for you to, to be in a, in a, in a place. And I don't even mean a physical place. I just mean in a role, you know, we've talked about people, you know, now you can work for a company in New York or LA from, uh, you know, Des Moines, Iowa, or from Lincoln, Nebraska. And so, but it's really about what the, does the place really have to have this, this amazing proven established thing. And are you really going to just try to navigate your way up there getting your 6%, 7% or 8% raise, go, you know, go bet on yourself and make that splash and be awesome and network. Network like crazy. Remember people's names, write them down and stay in touch. So the, the resonating with people frequently and authentically, uh, being true to yourself and, and, and pushing yourself hard, taking the thing that may be south of what you had anticipated the world being for you. But if you go there and you excel in that setting, and you have patience, uh, you know, you've got a real chance to be a difference maker and to be a, a, you know, a thought leader and, you know, don't stay somewhere too long. Uh, you know, if something feels like it's flattening out on you, uh, you network, use the skill that you have uh, to be a person who, who can, can, can write your own ticket. Uh, don't just wait for it to happen. I mean, it just really takes persistence and belief in yourself and, and you should have it. And you should, you should, you should use these, these social networks and we sure have fun with social networks, but if you anticipate that there's like a connection you can make there where you can actually have a substantive discussion and, and, you know, take it, take it offline to kind of a deeper level where, where it can lead to success in your path, pay attention to who it is you get to interact with. There's a young kid named Alex Fuse and I'll embarrass him a little bit, but he, you know, he's a, he's a student who's a, trying to be a broadcaster. Tell you what, go getter, great example. Went to Fordham, um, I believe. I think he might have transferred somewhere. But yeah, anyway, great, great kid and just smart and talented networker. And I hate to, you know, single him out, but it's just like, okay, I get it. He's willing to go to this place to do that thing. And he's real. So you really stand out by being real and by being persistent and being excited. And the, the last thing I'll say, though, um, so I'm full of advice. My kids would all be rolling their eyes <laughs> if they had gotten this far and they would not have gotten this far. It, it It's just... I don't know. It's, it's just that I just have this. Um, people tend to dwell on the thing that they can't control as opposed to celebrating the thing that they can. Mm -hmm. So celebrate the thing that you can control. There are so many things you can't control. Celebrate those things that you can and make sure that, that those things are um, absolutely, you know, wonderful and, and, and uh, exciting and successful. And it, wow. it, it, it'll take you a long way. Joe, not only did he pass the test, he passed it with flying colors. Right? <laughs> and he gave us great sausage tips. Which is <laughs> well done, Dan. That's, right, that's my next stop, yeah. Joe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, think after you, after you finish your memoirs, you, you can write a book on career advice. 
for those of us who are parents, you know, what you said resonates. Uh, that's one reason I think people like coming on the podcast because they actually get, get to dish advice and people have to listen. <laughs> well, they don't have to. Advice. They don't have to, but we sure hope they will. It's like the Seinfeld moment. Well, somehow like, you know, in this context, it works. Yeah. You know? No, no, but on Seinfeld, where it's like the line was with Russell Dalrymple, you know, why, why are people watching? And George says, because it's on TV. And mm -hmm. Dalrymple says, not yet it isn't. <laughs> so right. uh, anyway. That's right. great. So la lastly, uh, where can people find you uh, in social media or email, whatever you want to provide that you're comfortable with and, and maybe learn a little bit more about Turn 2. Uh, LinkedIn is great. I'm Dinman, D-I-N-N-M-A-N-N -N -N on LinkedIn and, and on Twitter, I'm Moose Out Front. And it's, it's a line from a very old movie called Vacation. And the line was, Moose Out Front should have told you when the park was closed. So, you know, Moose Out Front should tell you what it is that you want to hear and should tell you effectively so it's not that you've shown up at the amusement park without realizing it was closed. Or I, or I risk it punched, getting punched in the nose. So it, it's really just a reminder to me to not get punched in the nose by actually telling people what, um, telling people what's up. That's funny. Good for you. Great. All right. Cool. Thank you all. Joe, do you, want to, uh, do you want to wrap? Yeah. And this is, um, you know, another great hour uh, of learning about everything from the history of the Astrodome to where we're going, going forward in the next decade to, you know, Din Man, once again, a great time, well overdue. Glad you could join us here at the end of August in 2021. Uh, for myself, Joe Favorito, and my co-host, Tom Richardson, and Ben and Taylor and Tom Cerny, our producers, thanks for joining us on The Cusp Show. Appreciate all of you. Thank you. Ben and Taylor, great to meet you as well. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.